1: sociology podcast channel, and I'm Deidre Ann Tyler, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking with Dr. John Morello III, author of the book, Impossible Stories on the Space and Time of Black Destructive Creation. Welcome to the show, Dr. John Morello.
0: Oh, happy to be here.
1: I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself and how your book project got started.
0: Um, Okay. So, to be honest, this project started uh, kind of as a product of me being a huge nerd. Um, I'm very into science fiction, and there's a particular episode of the show Doctor Who, and uh, the the, the guy that plays the doctor, David Tennant, at the time, he described time... As a big ball of wibbly wobbly timey wimey stuff, right? As opposed to like a timeline or some other thing, and I thought that was really compelling to start thinking about how 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 complicated uh, the idea of time and and temporality was for Black people, Um, and that'd be kind of the became kind of the jump on, jumping off point for my piece um, and my thinking throughout it. And so it started off in like grad school, uh, writing the sort of dissertation version of what this is. And then um, I kept sticking with the idea and trying to mull it over in my mind um, and, and then produce the book that you have here um, from that project. So it's been a really long engagement with what started out as a question about, you know, what even is black time? What does it mean to be a black person in relationship to time, um, given the structure of the world around us and given, you know, the ways that that world is violent on scales that aren't just, you know, purely material um, or purely observable, in, um, in the events that happen in the world, right? But in, in ways that are actually significantly larger um, and more perhaps menacing uh, than they seem on the surface. So that that's sort of how this all started. And um, yeah, uh, there's also my interest in physics. I've had that interest since I was like five or six. I wanted to be a physicist when I grew up, um, an astrophysicist. and uh, part of this project was me keeping that desire alive in a new form. So those two things combined with my general research interest in black studies turned into this book.
1: Great. Can you tell us about your method? Because it was so creative. You looked at uh, the black creative work and you connected that into what you're trying to explain to us about life and death as being black. Explain that a little more, please.
0: Sure. Yeah. Um, I wanted to think in terms of, on the one hand, diagnosing a problem. So, you know, um, what is wrong? What's going on? Um, specifically, what's going on with black people? Temporality, black time, um, and also black space or black spatiality—like how we relate to time and space in fundamental ways—and you know that has abstract sort of questions built into it. But it's also about the real world, right? It's about the things we say to each other in conversation, um, the jokes we make about, you know, CP time, about not having time, about needing a minute, about um, you know not having space not belonging into a place, uh, not belonging anywhere, uh, feeling out of place, right? Um, having nowhere to be. Those kind of casual things that we say that signal much larger or abstract problems. So that was the one hand I wanted to diagnose the problem um, as we kind of already talk about it and experience it in our everyday lives and in our uh relationships to these sometimes spectacular, spectacular events of violence, you know, these spectacular moments of uh, anti-black violence with the police or um, with the state in general, or with other people who are you know, authorized by the anti-black world to do violent things to black people. They don't necessarily have to be police, right? In um, the other hand, I wanted to talk about this in terms of what we've made of those, or made from those conditions right? Like, so we have this condition that I'm diagnosing, but then also we have uh, and a set of problems that I'm diagnosing, but we've made things, right? We've made movements, we've made art, we've made literature, which is the focus of the book, right? It's literature. We've made that under these conditions, right? Or with this, in, in, uh, with this as the fact of our existence. And so I'm looking at, like, how that problem Translates into our capacity to create um, literary spaces and times for each other, but also by extension, how we create political spaces and times for each other, or you know, filmic or musical or whatever spaces and times for one another, um, in acceptance of or recognition of the problems that we face or that structure our existence. Yeah, so that's that's kind of the relationship between the creative and the real or the creative and the, the sort of um, the creative and the violent, right? Um, that's why it's destructive creation, right? It, it's something that is built from the forces built from and with the forces that destroy us, right? It's, it's with that. And from that, that we create Tony Morrison's beloved or Casey layman's long division or, you know, um, the movement for black lives that, you know, took to the streets for eight or nine months this past year. Um, yeah, so that's, that's sort of what I'm trying to accomplish in the, in the text.
1: You talked about Michelle Wright. Can you elaborate on how you're connecting this space with her writings?
0: Yeah, um, so I, I had started thinking about this uh, let's see, yeah, maybe 2010 or 11, I was trying to sort of formulate my thinking about time and space, but um, and, and trying to think about how to use physics in a humanities-based discipline, right? Like a or a, in a sociological-based discipline, right? Like, you know, you're talking about something that's social sciences and history and and literature and philosophy and trying to use hard science like physics to help describe what's happening in that field or set of fields, you know, um, which is difficult. And so I didn't really have a framework for how to do that or if it would be acceptable as a project. And then Michelle Wright wrote her book, Physics of Blackness. And I think she had a few articles that led up to that book before that. But it wasn't until her book came out that I um, started looking into her work and seeing that there is a language and a method for thinking about the relationship between, you know, blackness um, in, a, in a philosophical way, but also blackness in terms of the physical phenomena uh, that we experience and that we see uh, in and at the base of the world. And so, on the on that level, she sort of gave me an opening to do the project that I wanted to do with a sense of legitimacy, um, because it was a conversation that she was starting to have with us, right? Um, I think we've had this conversation on some level, but we didn't do it in a way that incorporated physics in any kind of serious capacity, and she was like the first person I encountered that was taken seriously in that way. And so um, there's more people now, you know, a lot of people, there's a, a recent book called um, the Disordered Cosmos by Chanda Prescott weinstein um, that does this work very explicitly and does it beautifully. Um, there's this book that I just wrote. There's a book um, called, um, shoot, I forget the name of the book. Uh, well, there's there's a, the point is there's a there's a wealth of work now, but I think it kind of starts with Michelle Wright's work, um, in explicitly talking about physics this way. And um, that's kind of how I started relating to her work. I disagree with her work. Um, as I do in the book, you know, there's a, a huge section that kind of tells you why. Um, and it's just kind of grounded in the framing of the idea that she's talking about. Uh, she's sending her centering her ideas on the premise that Blackness is an identity, and then moving forward with her theory of time from that premise. And for me, that's not that's not enough, right? It's not that she's wrong or that she, or her work isn't useful, it's that it's not capturing the fullness of the problem. And what I'm trying to do is sort of supplement her work by saying it's not just identity, it's about being, like existence, right? It's, it's not what, just what you identify as, right? Or just what you experience, Right? But, but the fact of existence in the world, right? independent of what you identify as, independent of identity, independent of desire, right? is, is it, which is you know also why physics is useful. Physics talks about phenomena that just happen. They don't need to be experienced. The rules of the universe don't need to be agreed upon. right. They don't need to be identified with. They just are. And so I was kind of trying to add that to the mix that she sort of started making.
1: That's so great. In in your whole book, you talk about the anti-Black world, the time, space, and literature. Can you describe some of the incidents that have recently occurred and how you've given examples of this?
0: Yeah, um, it was really important to me to remind myself and the people reading the book which you know, may just be academics or maybe people not even in school, um, that this is not purely abstract and that this is not purely just what we see and experience. And so I, I really needed to have that part of the book that's really just narrative, right? That just talks about what happened and how those things that actually happened are the sources for these theoretical or abstract claims that we that I have, or that we have in general, you know. So I talked about, um, for for the for the space chapter, for example, um, I talked about um, this man, Nephi Araguin, and how he was killed. Uh, in my home city, in my hometown of Cerritos, and you know, he he was killed because someone called the police. When he he and his friend, you know, knocked on a door, looking for their friend's house. They were in Cerritos, trying to find their way, I guess, and they knocked on the maybe the wrong door. And then so, um, they were sort of talking at their car, trying to figure out, I guess, where they're going to go or where the right place is, or redirect themselves. The person in the house that they knocked on the on the door of, they they called the police, and they said that he didn't look like he belonged here. You know, whatever that means, whatever here is, right? And the register upon which that word here operates is not just like here Cerritos, right? But here in the world, right? Here in space that isn't supposed to be for black people, whatever that is, right? You know, and if that's everywhere, then you know, what do we do with the nowhere that we have? So he's killed um, in a confrontation with the police. You know, he's accosted by them for not being someone that looks like they belong in the neighborhood. And they ask for his ID. And uh, he refuses to give it to them. Uh, they allege that he tried to kind of magically um <laughs> You know, they're they're at the pat, the driver's side window that he tried to run them over with his car, which doesn't physically make any sense. Um, how could he whip around his car to the side to run them over? But um, from a city, from standing position, you know. Um, and they shot him. You know, they shot him in the heart. Uh, he crashed into a light pole. The light pole, uh, or uh, the wires from the light pole, came down. Uh, the fire hydrant uh, next to him had like kind of exploded upward, and so the wires that were live wires were in the were in the water. So paramedics didn't really get to him any useful amount of time, and uh, he died. And it's traceable back to the fact that someone said he didn't look he belonged here. Right, the space wasn't his to have. The space wasn't his to be in and he's dead, right? And if you have to, you have to Google it to find out what happens in the aftermath, but years later they settle with uh, the family, the Sheriff's, the, I think Cerrito Sheriff's Department, you know, they settle with uh, the family for a couple, for like a couple million dollars or something. And that's supposed to be the end of it, but it's sort of swept, even that swept under the rug, right? Because the announcement of a settlement suggests that they lied and that they are culpable and they would have to show that what they were doing was enforcing this belief that black people don't belong in places. So they killed him because he didn't belong places and for them to settle in public and for that settlement to be made widely known would be to say, yeah, we killed him just because we didn't think he belonged here, you know? And so then I have that same um, approach to the chapters about time and it's in a similar fashion, right? Um, the Khalif Browder story, right? The documentary that I write about in the, the book is called Time, the Khalif Browder story, right? And it has these stylizations of, you know, between scenes, they'll have gears turning like of a clock and then they'll have time on a digital clock running really fast or really slow all of a sudden or backwards or forwards um, or skipping. Um, they'll have like a, a a regular clock, and then the the hands will move all crazy, and is trying to very much show that this is a problem with time. You know, the amount of time that Khalif was in jail uh, in solitary confinement, the amount of time that he lost when he has to spend essentially three years back and forth between uh, the trial that never happens because the witness never shows, right, and um, being brutalized in prison, or being contained in the solitary confinement of prison for I think something like 882 days, something close to that number. Um, and so the the story is not just that it was wrong for him to be treated the way he was treated and that this is shows the failures of the justice system for black people, right? But it also shows that like there's a problem with how we get to relate to time. He'll never get that time back or he never could before he took his own life, and the agony of that loss of time is what drove him to do that. You know, and there's other instances of real-world narratives, real things that have happened. Um, you know, Tamir Rice was was shot in 1.8814 uh, seconds, right between the time that the police officer enters the frame of the security camera footage and the time that Khali, uh, that uh, Tamir Rice is dead. He didn't, that, that that amount of time was shown on CNN in the little time box on the bottom of the screen that kept playing over and over again. And it was clear that not only the was the problem that they shot him at all, right? But that they shot him so fast, 1.8 seconds. You know, that's the that's the amount of time that was given to a black life to confirm that it, he is not a threat, you know? Um, So time was a problem there. Um, Even recently, you know, with with this story that people were debating for some reason, um, with uh, Makia Bryant, right? The time that was given to her and to the situation to find any other possible resolution was not even considered, right? It was immediately she needs to be taken out. And she's 16, her sister called the police to help her because two grown people came to attack her and she was defending herself right but no time is given to think about any of that right it's get out the car down and then shoot and then the people on the internet ah yeah you know she had a knife though you know she she deserved it you know or she's not one of the ones we should care about because she looked like she was a threat Right? But if we all took the time to actually think about the story and find out what happened, we re- we realize it's another instance of this refusal to give black people time. and so then what do we do with these things? right? What do we do with the realities of uh, these moments of horrifying violence that show us how we relate to time and space? you know my concern in the book and with and in, in general in my classes and then and in my own life is just, what are we supposed to do with that? You know? Uh, yeah. Yeah.
1: You brought up trauma work and wake work. Explain to the audience what you see with those two terms, trauma work. How, how is society dealing with these issues because we're seeing it constantly over and over again.
0: Yeah. Um, you know, wake work comes from Christina Sharpe's book called *In the Wake* on Blackness and Being. I think it came out in 2016 or 15. And um, definitely, I would recommend that people go read that um, to fully grasp what she means by that term. But what I'm saying with the idea of like trauma work is that we're the work that we do. You know, to create things to uh, whether that's a political movement or some food that we need to cook today uh, to feed our families or something in between, you know, um, that that the work we do is bound up with trauma um, in a way that we can't escape. And so we always end up having to work with or through the trauma of being a black person in a world that is anti-black, you know, um we on the daily uh, in big and small ways have to make effortful decisions, you know, workful decisions, right? Um about what we do in relationship to the fact of the trauma that is like everywhere around us, that is often significantly far out of our control. Right? And so the question that I was asking about in those chapters about wake work and, and work and trauma work was, you know, how do we work not in sort of a resignation to the trauma that we experience daily, you know, like, it's not just like, okay, we, we give up this trauma, let's just deal with it. It's just that it is here. Right? And we are going to strain against it, and we're going to push back against it, and we're going to try to protect ourselves in all kinds of ways from the repeat, the repetitious kind of traumatization that we get from seeing the video again, or having to watch the trial again, or to hear the news again, or whatever. Right? We're going to do those things, but we can only do those things in recognition of the fact that that trauma is real, right? and that the trauma is all-encompassing. And that it, it is, like part of us, even though we don't want it to be part of us, it is just part of us, right? We are by by the by necessity for the world, right? It is necessary for the world to have us traumatized this way. How have we worked through with and against this? Like understanding that it is part of the work. How do we work with? from that, right, as much as we work against it. And so that, that's kind of what I'm, I'm getting at when I say, like, trauma work.
1: Now, I, I thought this was interesting that you, you brought in gender. And I want you to explain how gender plays such a role in this whole aspect and dynamics of Black life and Black death.
0: Yeah, so... Um... You know, the best, well, there there are certainly uh, scholars whose focus is this, that are people I would suggest people read um, to get a full account of how to answer this question. But um, I'll point to them here. So I talk about Hortense Spillers in this book because in her kind of all important essay, Mama's Baby, Papa's Maybe," an American grammar book, in that essay that she wrote in 1987 um, she writes what some people misinterpret as this sort of dismissal of gender as it relates to black people because it's like oh okay well um, she says that losing at least gender in the aftermath of the violence of like anti-black violence right And so it's not that gender doesn't matter it's just that Gender doesn't happen to black people or for black people the same way that gender happens for everybody else. So you see this in, like, the way it manifests in material ways in the world, right? Like um, the difference in, for example, the treatment by the police of a white woman and a black woman, right? Gender doesn't figure there the same way that it is figured for a white woman, who is usually presumed to be victim by default unless proven otherwise. For black women, it's like you your threat first unless proven otherwise. Right? And so gender doesn't work for black women the same way that it works for white women, and that's a consequence of the violence that began with slavery. And so she's not saying that gender doesn't matter. She's saying that it matters but on a completely different register, right? Um, and so when we talk about gender, we have to like be nuanced about the way we don't, fl- like we, we, we avoid flattening like womanness ness or um, even being trans or gender nonconforming, Like they don't even work the same way for black folk. So a black trans person experiences a completely different relationship to their gender than anybody else would that would be trans, right? And so that's kind of the fundamental like basic thing about how this problem at the heart of you know, black social death and black the pro- and how that you know, stands in the face of or denies black social life in some kinds of ways. Um, how that changes our relationship to gender in a really violent, a really problematic kind of way that forms of feminism and forms of queer studies and forms of um, academic thinking and political thinking that aren't black, don't fully account for. You know, so others, other writers that do this work, um, um, are uh, one that, the one that comes to mind is uh, Patrice Douglas. And um, she does brilliant work about exactly this question um, and unpacks that thought from Spillers in multiple essays and multiple, like, conference presentations that I think help deepen what I'm just saying in a kind of, like, I'm saying a very basic version of this issue. Um, she has an essay called Black Feminism for the Dead and the Dying, and it centers the story of, I believe it's Corin Gaines, and um, the way that gendering... For her, doesn't function the same way because of her blackness, right? Um, there's Joy James's work. Joy James does a lot of work with what she's uh, calling the captive maternal. You have um, Zakia Jackson's work. You know Sadia Hartman's work with, especially with Wayward Lives recently. Um, yeah, there's a there's a wealth of work about. Basically, that principle that gender does not happen for black folk like it does for other people. And, you know, that's extendable to other things like disability doesn't happen for black folk the same way that disability happens for non-black folk. You know, class doesn't happen (laughs) for black folk the same way that it does for non-black people. Right. And so it's kind of following that same trend um, to think about gender that way.
1: Now, you experienced and you read so much about the different creative works. Out of all of the creative works, which one stands out? Was it Toni Morrison, you know, that stands out in helping us to explain this time and space?
0: Uh, for me, I mean, for me, Toni Morrison, um, not just with Beloved, I know I, I write about Beloved in the book, but, you know, jazz. Um, Oh, jazz especially, um, Song of Solomon, um, Paradise. I mean, all her works, I think, for me, are the most impactful in the way you're asking. Um, if, if I were to pick one person, it would be Toni Morrison. Yeah.
1: Well, I've taken up a lot of your time right now. I want to know, what's your next project? What are you working on next, Dr. Marillo?
0: Uh, well, actually, I'm working on extending what I do in Impossible Stories, you know, which is very, like, academic and theoretical, um, even though it has narrative stuff in it. Um, I'm trying to extend that into writing a memoir uh, that is built upon the foundations, the conceptual foundations that I establish in this book. So I'm trying to see what happens if I try to write a memoir that does it accept that You know, time doesn't work for us the right way. And that space doesn't happen for us the same way, you know? uh, What happens to uh, the storytelling process? And what happens to the storytelling process about myself um, when I take those things seriously? So the project is called uh, A Myth of My Own Making. Untimely Dispatches from the Middle of Nowhere. And it's about my life, but it's trying to be kind of a staging ground for putting into practice the abstract things I say in this book, and uh, it's in progress. You know, um, I'm still looking, you know, for a place that would be a home for it. You know, try to get, trying to get a, a book contract for it. But um, I'm working on it now, and I'm finding very interesting things as I try to write these essays. Um, the first one I wrote was called "Time to Eat," and it's about food, memory, blackness and care, Um, in conceptually, but it's about my grandma and how she passed when I was 12 from breast cancer. And um, I found this book that she had been taking notes in, I guess, about five or six months before she died um, on natural healing. And so the notes that she had written in the book, I couldn't look at for like 10 years. And I tried to avoid them as much as I could, Um, but then I sat down one day, and I wanted to write this essay that I was trying to get published for her birthday, and, um, you know, tried to sit down and do this work, dealing with mourning and death, but also care and memory and respect and and all those kind of complicated feelings. Um, Yeah, so that's my next thing.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Uh, Thank you.